welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we just thank you so much for bringing us together as your family, as your sons and daughters, as brothers and sisters of one another. It's such a blessing to be together. We thank you for the wonderful weather that you've given us for tonight. We pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts to your word. Lord, make our hearts good soil for the word. We pray that the enemy wouldn't snatch it out. We pray that the cares and trials of this world wouldn't choke it out. But we pray, Lord, that the the word, the gospel seed, would go deep in our hearts and bear much fruit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're in Romans. Uh, Romans was written about 57 AD to a church in Rome. Paul wrote it. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to unify the church so that he could go off to Spain on missions. And his plan was to go to Jerusalem, spend some time there, drop off an offering, then go to Rome, and then be sent on to Spain. As we talked about last week, his plans didn't always go as he he had hoped. He actually ended up going to Rome, but as a prisoner, and he never made it to Spain. So his plans didn't work out the way he thought. But God in his providence gave us the book of Romans and did so many more amazing things through it. So what he talks about here in, in verse 15 is he says that, He's excited. He's eager to preach the gospel to him. And if you look at verse 16, and please do this. If you, if you don't have a Bible, grab your phone and just put in Romans 1. There'll be any translations, fine. ESVs, preferred. But any, any translations, fine. Go ahead and find that. I want to show you verse 16. I want you to look at it as we go. We're going to digest every little piece of it. So you're going to want to look. He says why he's excited to preach the gospel in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is eager, he's excited to come and preach the gospel to them. He says he's not ashamed of it. And just the fact that Paul mentions that he's not ashamed of the gospel tells us that there must have been some temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. That Paul was tempted, his hearers were tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. We too, guys, can be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, can't we? You might think, well, why would Paul be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? In another place, 1 Corinthians, he says this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That word that's translated ashamed here can also be translated offended. The gospel offends every culture that hears it, okay? The gospel offends every culture that hears it. Gospel offends every culture in a unique way. The Jews of that time, they would have been offended by the gospel because they would have been offended by the idea of a crucified Messiah. It's offensive to them. They would have been offended by the idea of Gentiles being made right with God without adhering to the Mosaic laws. They would have been offended by that. The, the Gentiles at that time, the Greek culture, the Romans, they would have been offended by the idea of a physical bodily resurrection. That offended them. It offended them the idea that there would be a power greater than Rome and Rome's gods. Paul had countless opportunities to feel ashamed of the gospel. Whether he was in a synagogue, meeting synagogue leaders in Antioch or Roman officials in Ephesus or the philosophers in Athens, Paul was probably constantly asked, you don't really believe this nonsense, do you? And remember that Paul was a very educated, very respected Jewish teacher before he was converted. He would have been used to being respected. But everywhere he went, there were temptations, real temptations to be ashamed of the gospel. How about you guys? 
You know, what is it about the gospel? What is it about the biblical message that offends our culture that tempts you to be ashamed? Why don't you give them to me? This is, tell me. What are some ways that the, the gospel offends our culture that tempt you to be ashamed of the gospel? What's that? Okay, because we, we're saying we're inadequate. We can't save ourselves. That's offensive, right? That's offensive to our culture. It's offensive to our culture to be told that we're sinners, right? Because we prize self-esteem. It might be actually psychologically harmful for you to be told you're a sinner, right? It's a terrible thing. You know, we think that we're basically good people that occasionally do bad things. And then Romans 3 tells us, no one's done good. No, not one. How about another one? Some other way that you're, you know, sheepish about sharing the gospel. What's that? The exclusivity is huge, right? So we're a culture that prizes choice. And the gospel tells us, you know what? You don't have a choice. There's one way to be saved. It's Jesus. We have a good reason for that. It's not just because God's picky. Jesus is the only one that solved the problem. He's the only one that solved the sin problem. It, it, it really does no good for you to complain that your barber can't fix your plumbing, right? It really does no good that you complain your plumber can't do your flooring, right? Jesus is the only one that solved the sin problem. If we go to some other God or if we go to some other religious teacher, that person doesn't know how to solve the problem. Only Jesus has. What's another one that you run into? Sexuality issues are huge, right? And we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks in Romans. But uh, sexuality is so tied up in people's identity. To be told that there's any restrictions on their sexuality is, is to not affirm them as a person, right? It's become very serious in our culture. We're, we don't like being told that we're slaves to our sin, right? We're a culture that really prizes freedom. We look at Romans 6, it says that we're slaves to sin. No one wants to hear that, but that's the truth. The Bible again and again, the, the gospel again and again, causes the culture to be offended and causes us to be tempted to be ashamed of it. You know, you guys realize like all these objections really feel like they hold water because we're a part of our culture too. So when we hear the objections of our culture, they sting to us too because we're also a product of our culture. But you guys got to realize that the gospel offends every culture in different ways, okay? Every, in every culture in different ways. And that's not a weakness of the gospel that it offends our culture. It shows the weakness in our culture to deal with the truth. And the rules shifted, right? They shift every few decades or every few centuries. The rules shift and the gospel offends people in a different way. We are not offended by the gospel the same way Paul's first century culture was, right? We're not offended by the gospel in the same way a Middle Eastern culture is. You might think, why should our objections to the gospel be the ones that have authority? It's kind of arrogant, actually, to think that we finally found the right reasons to be offended by the gospel in our culture, in our land, when everybody else has been offended by something different than what we are. So Paul had a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, and so do we. But he says here, he goes, I'm not ashamed. But positively, he says, I'm proud of the gospel, right? Not ashamed of it. I'm proud of it. I'm eager to preach it. So why? Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Why was he proud of the gospel? Why was he eager to share the gospel? Don't you want to know? Don't you want to have that? Isn't that something you want in your heart? Well, that's what we're going to look at tonight. And Paul tells us why he's not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16. Take a look at it. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for... It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See that word for? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for. It's an important word. It's a little Greek word, gar. It's a very important little word. It's all throughout Romans. It helps you to know the flow of the argument. You can understand it when you see these words. It means because, right? And so he tells us that he's not ashamed of the gospel 
because or for it is the power of God for salvation. Notice from this passage that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel does not need power added to it. The gospel does not need your help. It is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, as it's heard, causes salvation. It causes faith. We know from Romans 10, 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we should be eager to speak the gospel because it is the power of God to implant salvation in people. Years ago, I was at this biblical counseling conference, and this is probably 10 years ago or something like that, and a few of us that went to the conference went out to lunch. And one guy there was like, hey, I know what we should do. We should share our testimonies. Dude was way more spiritual than me. I never would have thought of that. So we all shared our testimonies over lunch, and it was great. He shares his, and I think I know then why he said, let's share our testimonies. So here's his testimony. He was a marriage and family therapist for years. He actually owned some comedy clubs, too. He liked to make people happy one way or the other, I guess. So anyway, he owned these. He had a friend that was a Christian. That friend shared the gospel with him, really implored him about the gospel, made the gospel very clear to him. He, he had no interest whatsoever. Some years went on. He dealt a lot with guilt. He felt like in his work, he wasn't really helping people. And he just kind of spiraled in guilt, just guilt out of control and, uh, and, and depression out of control. And he got more and more delusional. His guilt built. So he started being guilty about things he didn't do, things that really didn't even relate to him. At one point, he thought he was the Unabomber. This is way back then. He thought he had killed O.J. Simpson's wife. He had gotten to the point where he was like seriously guilty, delusional, thinking he did all these things he didn't do. They institutionalize him. One day, when he's there, been there for months, he remembers the gospel that he'd heard years before, okay? And he believes it, and then shortly thereafter leaves. Fine, right? He got saved, didn't hear the gospel again. He heard it years before. It was a seed germinating in his heart, and he came to believe, and it made him sane, and he left. Isn't that amazing? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. You guys remember the movie Inception? Who likes the movie Inception? It's a safe place. Okay. So there's a different Cobb in that movie, right? There's Dom Cobb, Dominic Cobb. And he said this, the seed that we plant in this man's mind may change everything. The gospel, guys, is a seed like that. It is the power of God. It can change everything in a person's life if they're just given it, and it just grows within their heart. It's the power to completely change a person's mind, their heart, their whole life. And I've seen this over and over again. I've seen people that have zero interest in God become completely obsessed with Jesus Christ. And it wasn't because somebody was really skilled at sharing the message. It wasn't because somebody lived just the perfect life in front of this person. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. I've seen this in clients' lives. I've seen this in the lives of family, for sure, friends, uh, many of you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Our role is just to give it, okay, like an inception. Our role is just to plant it in their minds. But you don't have to, like, go into their dreams and do it that way. You can just speak it, which is way more convenient, okay? But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Let's not be ashamed to do that, guys. If you have a message that can take over people's lives and turn them to Jesus, we should not be ashamed about giving it. We should put it out there and see what the Lord does with it. We all know unsaved people. I just challenge you guys, share an audio message with them. If you think this one's worthy, you can share this one with them. Share audio messages, video messages, share books about the gospel, share little gospel tracts, share little books of the Bible. You know, we have the Luke books and others. Share it, guys. People are constantly sharing videos, articles, podcasts right now. You could share something that completely changed somebody's life. It is the power of God for salvation. Notice verse 16. 
It says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. Three times faith is mentioned in this passage in these two verses. The gospel is the good news, guys, that salvation is not earned but received by faith as a free gift. It says in verse 16, to everyone who believes. And it's not as if your faith earns salvation. Faith is merely the empty hand to receive God's grace, right? So when we come to Christ, we bring nothing except our own sin. It's an empty hand receiving Jesus or receiving him for free. Faith is that empty hand. That's all you would need tonight. If you come here and you're not certain whether you're right with the Lord, all you would need tonight is with an empty hand to just say, I want Jesus Christ tonight. I want him to save me. I want him to come into my life and take it over, just like Eric was talking about, right? Calvin put it this way. He said, we may compare uh, faith to a kind of vessel, for unless we come empty and with the mouth of our soul open to seek God's grace, then we are incapable of receiving Christ. He, he describes it as an empty vessel, that we're just empty, we have nothing to bring, and we just are receiving him. He describes it here, I love this image of, it's the mouth of the soul open to receive God's grace. That's all is required. Sometimes people, you know, they hear a message about the gospel, and they're like, yeah, I know I need to get my life straight. You know, I know I need to get things right with God. And what they mean is they want to clean their life up first. That will never happen, okay? That's the whole point of the gospel, is that you can't do that. You're a complete failure at living your own life, right? And so am I. We have completely messed it up. I think all of us have lived long enough to realize that. It's a free gift received by grace. Verse 16 says that the gospel is salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Faith in Jesus Christ is the universal way of salvation. There are not multiple paths, like we talked about in the beginning. There are not multiple paths. We're not doing that to be mean. We're not saying that to be competitive because we don't want, you know, other religions to get part of the market. That's not what it's about. Only Jesus has solved the sin problem. And you know what? No other religion has claimed to, okay? Buddha never said he solved the sin problem, right? Allah certainly never said he solved the sin problem. No one else out there has even claimed to solve the sin problem the way Jesus has. He died on the cross. He paid the full debt of sin. There's no other path because no one else has solved the problem. So the gospel in that sense is exclusive, right? It's only through Jesus is the only way of salvation. So it's exclusive in that way, but it's inclusive when you look at this text because it says it's available to everyone who believes. So only Jesus, but everyone can have him. Anyone can have him. Isn't that amazing? And the gospel is the power of God. We can see that it's the power of God in the way it's gone viral. Take a look at verse 16. It says that it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel has spread through the whole world and to every single culture. Do you guys realize that? Gospel spread all over the world. Some people say, oh, you know, Christianity, that's, uh, you know, a white American religion. It isn't because it wasn't founded by a white American. There are no white Americans in the Bible, okay? It is a global religion, starting with the Jews, out to the Greeks, out to us. Do you guys realize that Christianity is by far the most diverse human movement in history? You into diversity? Christianity is the most diverse human movement in history. There's no competition. There's no religion, no political movement, no philosophy that has more diverse people in it, which also speaks to the gospel's power, right? It's contagious. We know about things that are contagious. This is very contagious. This is something that's spread all over the world. It is the power of God for salvation. Guys, we have no reason to be ashamed of sharing a message that does that. Amen? Okay, cool. Now, you might go, okay, it's gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. 
But you might say, like, where is the power? What's the power? And that's what verse 17 is about. What makes it so powerful? There was a, uh, a fifth century Syrian bishop, okay? His name was uh, Theodoret, okay? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I don't know fifth century Syrian pronunciations, but Theodoret was his name. And he compared the gospel to a pepper. I love this. He compared the gospel to a pepper. He said, a pepper outwardly seems cold, but when the person who crunches it between their teeth will experience the sensation of its burning fire. Isn't that cool? He says the gospel is like a pepper. It's like the outside's all cold, but you crunch down into it. It's burning hot on the inside, okay? So our question for tonight would be, what makes the gospel so powerful? What is that inner burning core, right? What is that electrifying core of the gospel? And it says in verse 17, it says this, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Did you notice the four again? These are really important. In the beginning of that verse is four, the word, Greek word gar. The flow's like this. Verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And then verse 17 says, for, like this is the way it's the power of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel's power is found in that it reveals the righteousness of God. That's the power source in the middle. It reveals the righteousness of God. You might ask, well, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean the righteousness of God? If the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, like in what sense or what kind of righteousness of God are we talking about? And there's a few options. You could think about them. So righteousness of God could be the attribute of God's righteousness, right? So the gospel reveals that God is a righteous God, which it does. It could be that it reveals the righteousness of God in God's righteous action in saving people, which it certainly does. But I think there's a third meaning that fits a lot better with this context, which is it's God's righteousness that he gives as a gift to us to make us righteous, okay? So you got God's righteousness as an attribute, God's saving action of righteousness, and then God's righteousness he gives us as a gift. I think that third one is the best explanation when you go with the context here. So when we bite down on the gospel, that's the fire, that's the power, that's the electrifying core that we find in the gospel is that the righteousness that God demands of us, he gives us as a gift. Isn't that amazing? The righteousness that God demands of us, and he does demand 100% righteousness from us, okay? The righteousness God demands from us, he actually gives to us as a gift. That's the electrifying core. That's, that's the power of the gospel. Romans 3.21 says it this way, but now there's a righteousness of God that has been manifest apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Christianity is different from every other religion in that the righteousness that God demands from us, he gives us as a gift. The reformers called this a passive righteousness. They called it a passive righteousness because we don't do anything to make it. We're passive in it, okay? This is something Jesus has earned in his earthly life and we passively receive it. It's, a, it's our righteousness, but it's passive in that we didn't do it, Okay? The reformers also called it an alien righteousness. I love that. An alien righteousness because it's a righteousness that's not from us. It's alien to us. It's Jesus' righteousness that's been given to us, but it's alien. Just like if you got somebody else's kidney or something, right? It's alien. It's an alien kidney. It's an alien righteousness that's been given to us. Reformers talked about this righteousness as an imputed righteousness because it's credited to us, okay? Some of you guys got some fat stimulus checks that were immediately deposited into your account, right? That was credited. That was imputed. You didn't earn it. You might have thought you did. You didn't earn it. 
just zapped in there. It's that kind of righteousness. It's the righteousness that doesn't belong to us. It was this verse, guys, verse 17, that converted Martin Luther. It's this verse, verse 17, about the righteousness of God that sparked the Reformation. When people realized that the Bible was actually teaching that we are actually given righteousness as a gift, Luther said it this way. There is a righteousness, which Paul calls the righteousness of faith. God imputes it to us apart from our works. In other words, it is a passive righteousness. So then, have we nothing to do with obtaining this righteousness? No, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing. But rather in knowing and believing only this, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, and our salvation. Now God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness sin has no place. So now we may be certain to think, although I still sin, I do not despair, because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine. And in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is Christ, the Son of God. And all God's people said, amen. Right, exactly. Guys, this is huge. This is huge. The gospel isn't just news that you had a clean slate. A lot of people talk about it that way. Come to Jesus, you'll have a clean slate, you'll have a fresh start, you'll have a new beginning. It's not just that. If it was a clean slate, then that would be something you would start building your righteousness upon, right? And how much would be enough? That's the problem of religion, is how do we measure it? How do we know when we've done enough righteous deeds? We wouldn't know. Lots of religions, guys, promise a clean slate. There's nothing new there. Instead, what the gospel is telling us is you don't just have a clean slate. You have Jesus's life as your life. And if you have Jesus's life as your life, how are you going to add to that? Think about it with me. If you've been credited Jesus' righteousness... What are you going to add to that? It's as if God the Father goes, man, I was so pleased with the earthly work of my son. And then I saw what you added to it. And wow. That's absurd, right? It's insulting even. We add no righteousness to our salvation. It is completely Jesus. Jesus' righteousness alone. Put it to you another way. The gospel is declaring chapter 7 bankruptcy. Okay? There's other kinds of bankruptcy. There's like chapter 13 bankruptcy. Chapter 13 bankruptcy is when you have some hope you could pay your bills, but you kind of need a little help and a repayment plan. That's what religion offers you. It's like, ooh, I can see you need help. I'm going to make you a payment plan. You know, you're not a total mess, okay? We can fix this, right? That's not what we declared when we came to Christ. We declared chapter 7 bankruptcy, which is when you're in such bad debt, you have no hope of paying it. No repayment plan would help you. The gospel is chapter 7 bankruptcy. You'll never pay those debts. Jesus paid them. But there's more. So not only did you declare chapter 7 bankruptcy, but then you married somebody with infinite riches. Okay? So you went from like you were just a financial disaster. You went through bankruptcy. And then you married somebody with infinite riches. When you trust in Christ, you get united with Christ. And that union is like a marriage union. Everything he has is yours. And so you have all of his assets, including his perfect, righteous, earthly life. His perfect life counted as your life, right? You'll forever be treated as Jesus deserves to be treated because you're united to him. Now that's good news, okay? The whole chapter 7 thing, that was cool. 
but you have Jesus' perfect righteousness credit to you. Guys, this way of salvation is totally contrary to every religion man has invented. All other religions basically say that you need to accrue your own righteousness to be saved. Only in the gospel does God give the righteousness that he demands as a gift. And that righteousness is Jesus Christ's righteousness. This righteousness of God, guys, is totally contrary to the way we think. And that's why I look at verse 17. It says that it's, it, the righteousness of God had to be revealed. It had to be revealed to us. No one would have ever discovered or guessed that God was going to save this way. It's totally contrary to any way we would think. It had to be revealed to us. Because, guys, works righteousness, which is our work builds a righteousness before God and he accepts us, Works righteousness is the default mode of the human heart. And why wouldn't it be? Because it's basically the way life works, right? You get what you deserve. You earn things and you have them, right? You get what you earn. But the gospel says you get what Christ earned. Because on the cross, Christ got what you earned. You get what Christ earns. And I don't know what your experience has been, but even once we hear this good news, we continually forget it. Do you find that to be the case? Because it's not natural to believe this. So we continually default to like, yeah, but how righteous am I before God? As righteous as Jesus. Yeah, but I mean, really? No, really. <laughs> that is really, okay? According to God, that is really. We constantly kind of come back to the idea of works righteousness, thinking that we're accepted by our own righteousness. Luther again said it this way, Christians never completely understand this in themselves and thus do not take advantage of it when they are troubled and tempted. I'll stop there for just a second. How would you take advantage of this when you're troubled or tempted? When you're troubled, when you go through hardships, for some people, they assume they're being judged by God. They're like, yep, that's because of this, this, and this. God's judging me. God's obviously angry with me. If we believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ, then we don't believe that God is judging us. He could discipline us. He could give us difficult situations to grow us and things like that, but he's never punishing us. Christ was punished in our place. How does it fit when we're tempted? When we're tempted, our consciences become very muddled. They become very burdened. And a lot of times we'll distance ourselves from God. When we're tempted or we're falling to sin, we'll put ourselves in a little spiritual timeout, right? You know, we don't immediately go back to Christ because we're like, yeah, but you know, he's probably not going to think I'm taking it seriously. If I just did this sin and immediately repent, I need to kind of like show him that I'm serious for a while. Once again, that's insane because the only way you're going to live different is by the Holy Spirit. The more you distance yourself from God, you want to come back quick. No spiritual timeouts. No, like, we'll wait a couple days, right? Okay, let me back up. Luther said this, Christians never completely understand this, this imputed righteousness of Christ, and thus do not take advantage of it when they are troubled and tempted. So we have to consistently, constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it out in practice. You might say, like, man, it seems like you talk about the gospel a lot. Why so much? We need to constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it out in practice, right? He says, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article, teach it on others, and beat it into their heads continually. Don't you love that? Luther, he's like that. We need to beat the gospel into our heads continually, right? Every time you share the gospel, guys, you're revealing, like it says in verse 17, you're revealing this amazing power of the gospel, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, that word reveal is related to the same word for the word revelation, like the book of Revelation. Apocalypse means to unveil. Every time you're sharing the gospel, you are unveiling the beauty of the gospel, which is the imputed, credited righteousness of God. 
Every time you share it. And this is in present tense. It's going on all the time every time we share it. Every time we share the gospel, we're encouraging people to take that pepper and bite down on it and really taste the full power and the, the fire, the life-changing power of the gospel. Guys, we should be eager to do this. There's no reason to be ashamed of this, is there? There isn't. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for such a revolutionary idea, the gospel. Lord, we, we, we know it's from you because it's not what we would have guessed. It's hard for us to even continue to believe it. And we thank you for opening our eyes to it, the beauty of it, the wonder of it. We thank you that our consciences can make clear that we can be rock solid in temptation and trial, knowing that we will always be treated as your son, Jesus Christ, that we are united to him and that can never be changed. Thank you so much for that. Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we just pray, Lord, that you would bless our time. We pray that you would feed our souls as you fed our souls in the word, that you'd feed our souls through the act of taking the bread and the cup. We pray, Lord, that you make us strong in your spirit. Lord, fill us with your spirit as we take the Lord's Supper, as we worship. Lord, let us leave brimming with joy and peace and power in your Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe your Spirit is here among us. We know that he loves to magnify Jesus Christ, that wherever Jesus is being made much of, he's there. And we pray, Lord, that he would work in us and through us, Lord. Give us new levels of transformation and repentance and new life. Lord, give us new boldness to share this message to a world that has no message to hope in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's your hope, if that's your joy, the gospel message, if that's the truth that brings you peace, then we ask you to join us in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we see the we see that the only true reason to be ashamed, our sin, has been completely dealt with. Amen? That feeling of shame is there for a reason. It's there as a smoke detector to alert us to the fact that we have sinned, that we, we have wronged a holy God. And what Christ has done on the cross is removed the shame of our sin by forgiving it and taking it out of the way. Hebrews 12 says this, Look to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. On the cross, Jesus endured the shame that we deserved for our sin. Jesus hung with criminals. He was naked. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He did this for the joy set before him. The joy set before him of removing your shame, of removing your sin. There's no sin in this gathering that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ and the work he's done. And so we get to rejoice in that. And we know that one of the joys he had set before him was to welcome us into his eternal kingdom when he returns. And we know that he has joy even in meeting with us now as we take the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is also called communion. It is true communion. It is true fellowship with Jesus. And it's also a beautiful picture, guys, of faith. Remember what Calvin said? Calvin said that faith is like an open mouth on your soul receiving God's grace, right? As we take this bread and we drink this cup, we're acknowledging that we're empty, that we have no way to save ourselves, and that we want him. It's to take hold of him. If you're trusting in him, let's take it together. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you to preserve you body and soul, 
unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, for you, and feed on him in your heart with thanksgiving and faith. Let's take it together. Let's take the cup together. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, to preserve you body and soul into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Let's be thankful together. Father, we're thankful. We thank you for stirring us in the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we worship now, we'd worship with body, heart, soul, everything that's within us, that we would give you the praise you're due. It's our joy to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.